0: Welcome to thehorse.com's Ask the Horse Live. I'm Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight's topic is Managing Horses on Small Acreages, and it's brought to you by our Farm and Barn Newsletter. Keep up to date with all of our farm management-related content featured in this information-packed newsletter. Sign up for it and others at thehorse.com newsletters. So not counting things like the day I got married or the arrival of my niece and nephew, I would say that the day that I finally got to bring my horses home to our own little 2.25 acre ranchette was just about the best day of my life. The second best day was nine years later when I finally got a tractor delivered to help me out on that small property. I might sell the horses at this point before I would sell that tractor. Okay, probably not, but she has changed my life for the better. That's because keeping horses at home is a lot of work, and it takes a lot of time, and that little tractor is a time-saving machine. What I'm saying is, if you have a tractor on your wish list, and if you own a small property, go buy it. It will change your life. Tonight, we're going to offer you some other time-saving tidbits and answer your questions about keeping horses at home on small properties. I'm joined tonight by Elaine Blickley of Horses for Clean Water, who's based in Nampa, Idaho, and Donna Folk, who's an equine extension specialist and educator with with Pennsylvania State University. Welcome to both of you ladies.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Very happy to be there.
0: Let's go ahead and get started with you, Elaine. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience helping horse owners uh, manage their properties?
1: Well, I've been working in this field of horses and land management for about 18 or a little more than that years. And I work with uh, small acreage horse owners and uh, agencies government agencies and I'm kind of like the liaison to help people uh, implement ways to take care of their horses that's going to be good for the horses as well as good for the environment and uh, meets the criteria the ordinances and the regulations in their county and jurisdictions and then I also write for the horse and the horsecom and uh,
0: and I travel around
1: and teach classes on these different topics and my business is called Horses for Clean Water.
0: You were just in Australia, weren't you, for a horse ke- keeping conference?
1: Yes, yes, I was uh, for two different horse keeping conferences in Australia, uh, one on sustainability and horse keeping and one on horses and land management uh, in two different parts of Australia, and it was actually the second time I've been there for that sort of thing. <laughs>
0: And uh, Donna, can you tell us a little bit about what you do as an Equine Extension Specialist in Pennsylvania?
2: Um, I actually work for Extension and it's, um, it, I think it's a great system. There's a lot of research that's generated by land-grant universities like Penn State. Penn State is just one. Um, my job is to take the research that's generated there and, and uh, make sure that horse owners and agencies have access to that. Um, we've put together a series of short courses. We have an environmental stewardship short course that we've offered for horse owners throughout the state of Pennsylvania and even into other states. We find that um, it takes a lot of education, a lot of practice, uh, a lot of knowledge to really manage a farm and really understand and make a decision. So this is a pretty intensive course that people take to learn to manage their farms. We also write grants, and I've been really lucky to be part of grants that allowed me to spend a lot of time working with horse owners, helping them to develop good practices on their farm that make their horses healthier and, and the environment healthier as well. Um, at present, we have a grant. We're working with parasite resistance and looking at a whole farm approach to how um, to, to man- manage parasites. So it, it's been exciting to step a little bit away from pastures, weeds, and manure and do something just a little bit different.
0: Um, So, I want to quickly review the format for tonight's event. we're going to start out by answering questions that were submitting, submitted during registration. Uh, if you have a question you'd like to ask our experts live or if you'd like a clarification on one of their responses, you can enter that in the chat window in front of you, and we'll do the best, uh, our best to get to as many of your questions as possible. But let's go ahead and get started with the questions that were submitted. And Donna, um, let's start with you and then Elaine. I'm sure you'll have some feedback too, we have a question from Mia and Merritt Island, Florida, and she wants to know how what do you recommend I do to learn about Preparing for owning a horse farm of my own are there college classes starter jobs or what other options do I have for learning?
2: Well again, I think your land-grant universities every university is different But their mission is to make sure education gets out there for um, anybody involved in, in agriculture and uh, I know Pennsylvania um we take a very proactive role in trying to put out educational programs that people can take but the other thing i find is horse people are wonderful at wanting to share information and i oftentimes tell somebody that's that's purchased a farm that wants to determine where to where to put their fencing how to lay out their farm what to do with employees they have a series of questions is to seek out A farm that's been in business for a really long time and spend some time at that farm. Call them, ask if they'll spend some time with them. You can learn so much just from being on a farm and learning from not only their successes but their failures.
0: And Elaine, what resources uh, would you recommend people uh, get a hold of to learn about keeping horses at home?
1: I would uh, mirror a lot of what or all of what Donna's saying and uh, in fact, farm tours, I mean, Donna said to go and visit farms, um, that would be great. And then a lot of agencies in different parts of the country actually host farm tours where they go to their educational events that go to different horse properties and they look at the different practices in place. I think it's um, quite common in the Northwest, the Pacific Northwest, um, that. Conservation Districts and Resource Conservation Districts both offer farm tours and educational events where you can, it's kind of like a Street of Dreams kind of thing for horse owners where you can walk through different horse properties, you can hear what practices they've got in place, like manure management and how they're managing manure, what they like, what doesn't what, what doesn't work for them, what they do differently, um, you can check out the kind of footing that they've got in their paddocks, the sizes of their barns and their paddocks. I, I think, like what Donna was saying, that farm tours are a great way to go as far as uh, getting
0: ideas. Donna, we have a question from Janet in Illinois, and she says that her pasture is growing a good amount of clover and she has very little space to rotate pastures for her horses. What suggestions do you have for for Janet on managing the clover and then also for allowing her horses to graze on it?
2: Okay, so to understand why a pasture gets taken over by clover, you really have to understand a little bit about how grass grows. And I think um, the solution to a lot of the problems with pastures is, is understanding exactly what the grass is doing. Most grasses that we have in our pastures, especially in the northern part, northeast, and and, in the central part of the country, are cool season grasses, and they store energy above the surface of the ground. And that would be almost the grasses that you're planting, orchard grass, um, uh, all the fescues, Timothy. All these grasses store energy right above the surface. So if if a horse walks out in the pasture and clips that grass ground level, several times. That horse really has prevented that grass from having the ability to grow back. Clover is different. Clover can store energy um, below the surface of the ground. So horses can graze clover really, really short and it's still able to come back. The other important difference is that clover is a nitrogen-fixing plant. It doesn't need nitrogen fertilizer to survive. It can take nitrogen from from the um, air pockets within the soil. And can convert nitrogen into protein and materials that it needs to grow. Grasses can't do that. Grasses need nitrogen as a as a fertilizer source. The problem if you have a lot of clover is really just an overgrazing one. So the answer really becomes what can I do to keep my horses from grazing those grasses back to ground level in such a way that they just can't they can't survive. And I think we're going to answer that in some other questions, but. Uh, that's, that's the, the primary thing would be rotation and just looking at that grass and when it starts to look like it needs the horses to be taken off, they have to be taken off. There's no magic bullet there. It's just a matter of managing those
1: grasses so they can survive.
0: Okay. And Donna, we yeah, have a Yeah, I would,
1: I would, I would just add uh, real quickly to that, that, that I, what I try to tell people is never graze your grass below about three to four inches that that bottom part of the grass plant belongs to the grass plant above that belongs to you
0: and we have a follow-up to the clover question um franco is in our live audience and he lives in mexico and he would like to know what grass donna you might suggest uh to introduce on a five-acre property that's going to be used to feed six medium-sized horses. He does not have access to irrigation, and I'm not sure what part of Mexico he's in. Uh, But Donna, what what recommendations do you have for for feeding six horses on five acres?
2: Yeah, I don't know that I can really talk strictly to Mexico because that's an entirely different climate, but most of the the country – the grasses that we, that we plant and we seed are cool season grasses. And it becomes not so much what you plant as how you manage it. I always get questions like what's better, orchard grass or Timothy? Well, it's a management issue. These grasses grow when it's cool. They don't like to grow when it's hot. They don't grow well in the summertime. I often, often find people will pat themselves on the back in the screen and go, wow, I'm doing a great job. My pasture looks great. And then they walk out in the pasture in July and say, wow, how did this happen? It's all weeds, the grass is gone. Well, metabolically, these cool season grasses just shut down in the summertime, and that's when we really damage them, when we let these horses continuously, continuously graze. So it's not what you plant as much as how you manage it. And there are times that if it's dry, if you're in the middle of the drought, the plants aren't growing, you just have to take the horses off. And uh, we can talk a little bit later on about sacrifice areas. And to me, for horse farms that are high density, that just don't have enough land to be grazing 24 hours a day, that's the answer to a a lot of the problems that we face. Um, Bluegrass, uh, it doesn't yield as much, but it, it does have the ability to store some energy under the ground and can tolerate heavy grazing a little bit better than some of the other grasses, like orchard grass, that store all their energy above the surface of the ground. The fescues are a little bit better at surviving, a little bit warmer temperatures. So um, if I'm recommending a seed mix for people, I want to know how they're going to manage it, where they live, what their climate is like. Management is really key, though, to maintaining productive
1: pastures. Okay.
0: So Donna, if people are wondering what grasses are best for their regions, um, where do you recommend they go get information?
2: I think one of the best thing. again I, I feel like I'm counting my, my own horn here, but um, every every state has um, a land-grant university that should have information that they should be able to access um, that will help them determine what kind of grasses grow best. Um, it's It's pretty similar as you go across the northern part of the 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 country, what we recommend in Pennsylvania is the same as New Jersey, New York State, it's the same similar climate. But once you get into the southern part of the state, you really want to tap into your land-grant universities. Another agency that's very good is the Natural Resource Conservation Service. Um, A lot of those, um, they're federal agencies, they have grazing specialists that people can tap into that will provide them information as well.
0: Um, we have a question from Pat in our live audience, and Pat's in Northwest Indiana, and wants to know how the two of you would define a small acreage. Um, let's start with you, Elaine. What's your idea of what a small acreage is for horses?
1: Yeah, that's a good question because when I I remember when I got my first small acreage, it was actually less than an acre, and I had a horse, and I got some material about managing work on small acreage and it um, it referred to small acreage as being like 50 acres so mm-hmm. I was feeling like I was uh, way out really, of my league. Really but small. I, yeah, so I think small acreage is, is probably 20 acres or less in in my experience over these past years and I would say that in my experience traveling all over the country and particularly out west is that m- more than half of my audience is five acres or less mm-hmm. and there's certainly a sizable amount that are on uh, even as small as one acre and uh, like Donna said management is key. It doesn't have to do with how many acres. It has to do with how how, mu- how well you manage that acreage. You just It's a little bit more intensive the smaller it gets. Okay,
0: And Donna? Uh, how about in your area? What's considered a small acreage?
2: You know, I'm not sure I even like the term "small acreage" as much as I kind of look at high density, because horse farms that have high numbers of horses per acre of turnout are in the same boat as small a- acreage operations. I think the density is really, really the key. I, I think if you get if you get higher than a horse per acre—it's a real challenge to manage properties. It's a real cha- challenge to manage manure. It's a real challenge. You know, the problem is we're faced with horses are animals that need to move, and what do you do when you put them on, on small acreage? Um, I know we've we've been talking a lot to—we've um, got 32,000 horse farms in Pennsylvania, and a great number of those are high-density horse operations and small acreage operations. And we talk a lot about the value of having a sacrifice area, a a place where you can put horses when the grass just tells you, you can't graze me anymore. I'm too short. I don't look healthy. I'm not going to grow back if you continuously graze graze me. And I always felt it's much healthier for the environment and the horse to put them in a heavy use area, which would be a barnyard, a sacrifice area. Rather than have the whole farm become a big sacrifice area, Take a small area and set it aside and construct a heavy-use area. And sometimes you might be able to graze those pastures for an hour. Sometimes you might be able to graze them for three hours. In the middle of the drought, maybe you can't graze them at all. But that's one way of keeping your pastures productive instead of constantly battling with bare ground and weeds and things, toxic plants, things you really don't want to expose your horses to.
1: Okay.
0: We have a question.
1: uh, Michelle, if I might add that... um, It just depends on how you want to manage your horses because you don't necessarily have to have pasture. I mean, I think most of us horse people would love to have pasture and want to have pasture, but I've seen plenty of places that don't have pasture, but they have access to a way to exercise their horses, and they have a sacrifice area or a paddock for their horses. Like the city of L.A., At one point, I I had a contract that I was working with the city of L.A., and they had something like 10,000 horses within their city limits. And those horses were all on very small acreage, but they were near public or uh, private facilities where they could trail ride and use arenas. There's parts of of Washington State like that as well where they, they can access those kinds of facilities. So they're on... Their horses are on very small acreage, and they may or may not have have pasture or, or a little bit of grass, maybe. Mm-hmm. But, yeah.
0: So, and and I think that that's one of the things that's interesting about horse keeping is how different it can be across the country. Um, Don, I was actually just in your state last month, and I got a chance to to drive around. I was at the at University of Pennsylvania's New Bolton Center, and driving yes. around mm-hmm. this beautiful. Pastures beautiful, where yeah. mm-hmm. beautiful, absolutely beautiful. There, uh, I'm in Central Oregon's high desert, and I don't have irrigation, so my whole place is a sacrifice area. And I and I feed, um, and I feed with hay year-round, and try to graze them on the lawn whenever I get a chance to because they really like it. They they're very excited. My horses are when we go to the west side of the state for a horse show and they get to graze a little bit. Um, but do you do you find um? Differences in how people manage on small properties versus some of your larger farms there in Pennsylvania uh, with with the big pastures.
2: Oh Absolutely, and there's different levels of understanding. I mean, I think a lot of people go into this uh, thinking that you can treat a pasture like a lawn And unfortunately, you tend to learn the hard way. I I have a farm. I I did the same thing. I said, I can teach a course on what not to do on a farm just because as we evolved, we made a lot of mistakes too, but um, yeah, there are, Pennsylvania is very diverse. There are areas that are a lot of small farms, a lot of high density farms in the area you were in. There tend to be a lot of very large farms with a lot of acreage, a lot of horses that are probably too fat because of how good the pastures are. But management is, is really key. I mean, it takes a lot of management to, to keep your, your pastures productive. It really does, and constant decision-making. And I think if people would think about the grass as a crop if they're trying to grow a pasture and, and, and do what's best for the grass and let the grass determine, and the horses need to be taken off so it doesn't get eliminated from the pasture. That, that's kind of, a, to me, one of the best ways to manage a pasture. But like Elaine said, you know, pastures aren't necessary. We're fortunate in the northeast, we've got a lot of rain, and and we can keep our pastures pretty nice normally. So we've got that advantage. It's not necessary.
0: Uh, And that segues nicely into our next question that's from our live audience. Ellen Catherine would like to know if zoning ordinances are similar for horse keeping across the United States. Elaine, you've done consulting in different states. What have you run into with different uh, zoning ordinances in different counties and mu- municipalities?
1: Well, they're different everywhere is the bottom line, but but also the bottom line is that they, they have to do with things like uh, water pollution, so runoff from manure or urine or mud from paddocks. Um, they have to do with, things like what what are called critical areas, so that would be wetlands or creeks or ponds or steep slopes. Um, They have to do with logging or cutting down trees, not not necessarily logging, but even cutting down trees can be regulated. Um, They have to do with how much fill dirt you might be bringing in, if you're placing any kind of structures near wellheads, um, or over your septic systems those kinds of things are not ever recommended anywhere So you want to start um, you want to cover all your bases because it can be county regulations there can be city regulations there can even be um, zoning regulations for the particular subdivision you're in or um, a community or watershed that you're in and, and one may supersede the other and then there's state or, uh, regulations, and then there's federal ones that those smaller municipalities are trying to adhere to. But those those are kind of the main things, I think, as the grouping. In some places, there's um, there's air quality issues, so dust can be a, a concern, too.
0: And in my area, so my neighborhood is a neighborhood of small acreages, and there's quite a bit of Uh, livestock, little hobby farms, and even our neighborhood has specific regulations to just our neighborhood on how many uh, animals you can have per acre or maximum capacity per property. So those are some things to look at. um, And definitely I would recommend from my experience, if someone's looking to purchase a small horse property to get an a realtor who understands horses and horse properties, Um, so your real estate agent may not be the same person who helped you buy a house in your subdivision, and you might be looking for someone with some some ranch and farm experience, Um, so I would add that in. Um, Donna, do you have anything to add?
2: Yeah, I think in, in Pennsylvania, I actually worked for Rutgers for a period of time in New Jersey, and it's... With all the development that's going on, it's getting more interesting all the time, and we're finding that local municipalities want to make their life easy by coming up with the magic number, how many acres do I need to have a horse? And we get calls constantly of what is that number, In New Jersey, they wanted a number for the whole state because it becomes much easier to say, well, okay, our magic number is two horses per acre. You're over that. You've got to get rid of some horses. But there's really no research to support that. It just goes back to, again, it's management. And I point out a lot of times to municipalities, they may take some wonderful operations and put them out of business if they just blindly come up with what they think is the best number Uh to use. The other issue we're facing here is uh, because of Chesapeake Bay and some of the, the nutrient issues we have, everybody in the state of Pennsylvania, if you have one animal in your backyard, you have to have a manure management plan. Okay. So the regulations every place I think are getting tighter and tighter and tighter. I think the horse industry in general escaped a lot of the regulations in the past, but in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Virginia, a lot of the focus right now is on on horse the horses and the horse farms when it comes to manure management. So things are
1: changing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I always try to tell people that um, even if there aren't regulations, and if we don't do a good job, there will be regulations. So as much as possible, if we can kind of try to stay ahead of the curve on that, um, then then we won't have to worry about it, uh, you know, the heavy regulations as much.
0: Yeah, and so how are some? What are some ways that people can be good neighbors, especially if you have neighbors that don't have horses, um, which is my case. Uh, my next door neighbors on one side just moved uh, from Portland and haven't lived in the country before. This is our first time having horses and neighbors, um, and they were excited to get to look at how pretty they are. But I'm not sure if they were prepared for for the smell and the flies and all the other things that come along with our horses. So, what can we do to be good neighbors? Uh, with our horse keeping. Um, Elaine, what suggestions do you have?
1: Well, the first thing, um, the biggest thing is manure management. So there's many different ways to manage manure. My favorite is composting. And what needs to be done is that you need to pick up manure every day from pens, paddocks, sacrifice areas, stalls, high traffic areas. And I would like to see it composted because flies and odors. associated with fresh manure and not with the composting process and then the composting process if it's done correctly it should smell good and then it gives you a value-added product of soil amendment that you can put back onto your pastures or you can give it away to your uh, neighbors who don't have horses so if you're managing manure then you're going to help reduce flies and odors and dust and mud in the winter time so that go and, and also aesthetics it's just going to look so much nicer if, if things are picked up instead of being an eyesore um, secondly is to try to control urine odors and dust and that would potentially be by the type of footing that you have in your confinement areas or any of the kind of dry lot sacrifice areas um, if you can put down some kind of footing, that'll help with with urine odors, and it'll also help control the dust. And I think um, I think those would be the two big things that I can think of at the moment. Maybe Donna has more to add.
2: No, I think you did a great job. I think the first thing that people think about is manure, and I also think being proactive and educating. Your, your neighbors, because I I kind of look at manure differently. I think it's wonderful stuff. I think if we called it a resource instead of a waste, it would change people's attitudes maybe a little bit. Um, people think it's all bad, and when you think about it, boy, it's everything you fed your horse that your horse didn't use. So you've got some wonderful minerals and, and zinc and copper and all kinds of good stuff in that manure, and when you compost it, it just becomes a really valuable resource. So like I try to explain to to people to, to to neighbors, people that don't understand horses, what manure really is and the value that it has and, and how good it is when you put it in the right place and you put it back on plants and it's taken up by by plants and it's used as a resource. And anything you can do, I think, to make sure they are a good neighbor, keep the manure pile away from property lines, planting some trees, to try to keep odor from going into a neighbor's property, controlling runoff, making sure there's vegetative buffers. Around sacrifice areas, um, and again, education I think is really key. When it gets to pastures too, I think keeping them mowed. You know, as they do get overgrazed, and you wind up with some noxious weeds, making sure that they are mowed and they look nice is probably important too. But uh, um, I think all of those things are just great suggestions for people, and communication is key. Wow.
1: Hey, Dan, not just, I want to if if I could just interject. Um, Donna said one of my most favorite things, and I forgot to, had forgotten to mention it, so I just want to reiterate that planting native trees and shrubs, you know, whatever is native to your area, you can get with extension or your conservation district to find out about that, but those kinds of plants can work for you in so many ways, and one of the things they can do is, is be a, a visual buffer between you and neighboring uses, and they can be a windscreen, they can be a dust barrier, And then they can provide a little bit of habitat for native insects and um, animals too. So native plants to work for you on your small acreage.
0: And I would add something that I just did. Uh, We do have these nice new neighbors who moved in uh, just recently. Prior to them moving in, I'd had neighbors forever who had horses. We had a wood fence between us. Um, The new neighbors have dogs that have a tendency to come under the fence and in with the horses. Uh, I was concerned about the horses getting injured, the dogs getting injured. I want to be good neighbors. Uh, So we actually just yesterday, it went up. uh, We had a no-climb fence put on that property line just to keep everyone safe, uh, keep their dogs on their side of the fence um, and not... Not in with the horses. So I think that that's another suggestion I would make is to work proactively with your neighbors to find solutions so that everyone can can stay positive and and have good relationships. and speaking of neighbors, we have uh, another question from Nicole in our live audience. She's in Ohio, and she wants to know what you should do if your neighbor has a poisonous tree, maybe a red maple, or other poisonous weeds or noxious weeds uh, that might cross over onto your property. How do you maintain the safety of your own pasture and your horses? Uh, Donna, what what suggestions do you have for Nicole? Um, yeah,
2: that's a tough one when the tree is on your neighbor's property. Um... But, you know, it's, in the case of the, the red maple, it's the, the wilted leaves that seem to be most toxic um, to horses, and I don't tend to worry a whole lot about leaves that fall in the, in, the, in the fall. So if your neighbor's tree is overhanging your pasture, it might be a good idea to prune those branches back so that you don't have a storm or something that's going to break off a branch and then... You have wilted green leaves in the pasture that the horses can eat. They are very dangerous to horses. They're one of the toxic plants I am always concerned about because I know veterinarians have told me that they've had horses that they've lost due to red maple toxicity. Um, I, I, gosh, I must have been on, I bet you, I, I'm, so I've been around here for a while but I've probably been on 400 farms in my lifetime, and I think there was only ever one farm that I was on that I didn't find something toxic. That's something people always want to know, veterinarians want to know. I mean, toxic plants are out there. The nice thing about the toxin is the plant doesn't want to be eaten, so the toxin is going to smell bad, it's going to taste bad. Most healthy horses, well-fed, lots of forage in their diet, aren't going to aren't going to tangle with a, a toxic plant. Um, so, but... Yeah, if it's on your neighbor's property, that's a little bit of an issue. That's the other reason I tell people don't put a fence line right on your property line. I, I always move my fences in if you can possibly do it for a lot of reasons. That way you can control what's growing on the outside. The other thing is if your horse is going to bite somebody, the person, if you move your fence in, is going to have to be trespassing on your property when they get bit, not standing on their own. So I think it's a really good idea to design your farm in such a way that you can control what's going on in the pasture and what's going on outside of the pasture.
0: And for everyone who's listening live, Jennifer, our web producer, has just popped a resource for you into uh, the chat if you're listening using the web application, and it's a blog post that Elaine put together about how to compost manure, and it has uh, instructions for, for building a compost bin system. So, Elaine, you remember that one, I'm sure.
1: Yes, I do. Yeah. Black gold, maybe we okay. called it black gold. And yeah. I think I've done some on fencing, too. That might be a good resource for people.
0: Yeah, and um, Jennifer, maybe if you could take a look and see if there's a, a fencing article that we can put in the chat also for everyone who's listening. Um, let's go ahead and move on to our next question. We have Anne Marie in Camas, Washington, and Elaine, she wants to know if you have any recommendations for selecting and building a round pen uh, as far as sizing, footing, or other considerations. What recommendations do you have? I know, Elaine, that you have a round pen on your property.
1: Yeah. My round pen is probably one of our most important features, next to our tractor, like Michelle said, <laughs> and also our gator. We really love our gator, but um, the round pen is essential. I think if I think I, I tell everybody if you're starting out, just at least get a round pen. Um, and I personally, as a rider and a uh, person who competes, I think if, I I like them at least. 70 feet. I just find, for myself, I'm just concerned if it's smaller than 70 feet in diameter, um, that it's just a lot of torque on their inside leg legs. And the other thing I like about round pens is, I, if you, especially if you have young horses or green horses or horses that are going to be playing in there, you want to make sure that the sides are like, I like them to be six feet tall, and that the edges um, meet in such a way that a horse couldn't rear up and get its feet between, stuck between the two panels. Mm -hmm. So they have like a square edge where they go together. Um, And then also, you want to be careful that the sides are not too big so that they could get stuck. They could be tempted to put their heads between the the rails and uh, or roll and get stuck in some way.
0: Elaine, do you have a preference between either prefab panels or building a round pen with fencing?
1: Um, You know I like metal ones better uh, and I like the panels because you can adjust them and if you need to make them smaller for some reason like uh, We've started uh, several Mustangs and we found that the 70 foot wide round one diameter one was too big for in some cases. So we would, yeah, a little bit too much room. And so then we could take a few of the panels out and make it a little bit smaller for at least for the initial part where you're trying to, you know, hook up with the, with the horse. So I like the panels because they just offer a lot of versatility. You could even break them down into two small pens if you had a lot of ex if you had some extra horses uh, and they also I might say if you've got panels and you move like we did we took our round pen with us from washington state to to idaho mm-hmm.
0: so
1: and i don't i don't care for wooden ones because you can chew on them and they can break they you know a horse smashes up against it and it's liable to break.
0: Our next question, Elaine, is from uh, Caroline in Plymouth, California, and she was wondering about building an arena. What recommendations would you have for footing for a small arena? Would you add sand or would you use the natural dirt?
1: Um, Well, all the source people are always asking that question and always um, looking at trying to make our footing better. Um, and I just did an article that I think was just out in the horse this month on um, dust, and it was using several resources from Pennsylvania State who are just outstanding to talk to and had a lot of really good information about dust. And what their advice was is that sand is the uh, gold standard as far as all arenas and all, all kinds of footing. And what you want is coarse washed sand of some sort and maybe like 10% uh, shavings to help hold the moisture. And I probably wouldn't recommend dirt because I, in my experience it would be way too dusty. And uh, that could be a problem for you, your horse, your neighborhood, your house, and, and all of that. Michelle, you've got experience in this. What do you say?
0: Yeah, I put in my arena, um, last summer and it changed my life too. So it's why I had to get a tractor though, because I needed something to be able to work the arena. Um, On a small property like mine with the two and a quarter acres, it was hard to situate the arena uh, because I wanted something, I ride dressage, and I didn't do a full dressage court, um, although I could have, but it would have been pretty expensive to do the length, so I ended up doing something that was a little bit wider, I think I'm 80 feet wide by 150 long, and so it's a big enough arena that if we wanted to resell the property, someone who didn't do dressage would be Interested in it as well. A um, little bit roomier than than a training court um, for dressage, which is you know short and narrow. Um, but positioning the arena far enough from the house so that we weren't having dust in the house all the time was a challenge. So we're as far as we can be from the back of the house. Um, but we did do the washed sand, which was an extra expense. It was definitely an extra expense, but uh, worthwhile. Prior to having that washed footing, which is over a compacted base, uh, I did ride just in the natural dirt out there, um, and it was super, super dusty, and the footing was just inconsistent. Um, I decided not to mix because I'm in an area where things are so dusty and our our sand, our natural dirt is so light um, that I... I just, if we mixed, we would end up getting dust. So we did a compacted pumice base, um, with the wash sand on top. And I really like that. Um, mine is just a couple inches deep for my dressage horses. I didn't want it, um, too deep. Elaine, for, you do raining, so you would want a deeper footing, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah, ours is like four to six inches deep, um, but you need that for raining or cow horse,
0: mm-hmm. uh, those okay.
1: kinds of events, Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, my um my dressage horses think they're working really hard when we go ride in a in a cow arena. So some things <laughs> to keep in mind, you know, partly what what you're doing with your horses. I need a base that the horses could push off of, so they go through the sand and they can push off the compacted base. Um, but there's still enough cushion that it's not um a lot of um a a lot of um oh stress on them uh, when they're hitting hitting the ground. So anyway, that that was my experience. Uh. Something else that I ran into, and Elaine, I'm sure you can speak to this too, and Donna, I think you had mentioned that you would put in some arenas too. Um, but you can read all of the books and all of the recommendations on arenas and what you should have, but what you should have versus what you can actually get in, in your area can vary. Um, so Donna, can you touch on that a little bit about the different products in different areas when putting together an arena? Yeah,
2: I think the problem is too, It's it's you, these, these products, are heavy to move around and so you pretty much are limited to what you can find and a board what you can find in your in your own area um, I hear you guys talking about debt, dust I wanted to pass this along something we did with our indoor because indoors get really dusty uh-huh. and uh, we we put a giant poly tank on the outside I mean indoors have a big roof barns have big roofs I don't know why we don't utilize poly tanks that can collect water off a roof Take a, simple pump, transfer pump, sump pump, and use that to water arenas because water is a great bonding material, makes the footing better in addition to controlling dust, and it's a, a really easy way to be collecting water off the roof when you have it and being able to use it when it's dry without taxing your well and pulling water out of the out of the ground groundwater, so you know that's something that we've done. We put poly tanks on our barns. We put poly tanks on the indoor, just so we don't have to be constantly pulling water out of the ground. And you said something really important, Michelle. Is the base? A lot of people don't think about the base. It's all about the footing, and the base is really important too. Um, uh, the other experience I have that I wanted to warn people about is we put rubber in our indoor with the stand, and I do absolutely love that. It gives it a little bit more bounce, a little cushion. We put it in our outside arena, and I find when it rains, it floats away. I have to bring it all I've back. that
0: before, yeah.
2: <laughs> it's light. So that would be something i caution somebody about. If they try to use shredded rubber on the outside, you're going to lose some of it when it rains really hard.
1: Mm-hmm. But it's
2: a challenge, yeah. and I think you have to just work with what you can find in your area. There is, you know, you can only be so perfect. It's all based on what you can afford and what you can find.
0: Mm-hmm. And i some really nice rubber footing Um, in our area. It was really popular for a certain amount of time, um, and I like it as a dressage rider, but I'm thinking, Elaine, that you don't want to um, have your uh, slide plates on the hind ends of your horses on rubber. Um, Have you run into rubber in your area?
1: Yeah, it works well for dressage, but it's too sticky for raining and cow horse, and uh, I think also for jumping it might be a little... Little too sticky, so it's a little more like very specific for dressage kinds of needs.
2: Yeah, I think you have so, to do it with sand, I have, not go heavy. On yeah, it. that's the key. Lots of sand and just a little bit, just to fluff up the sand a little bit
1: is what we kind of looked at. I don't put much in it because it would get too sticky. Yeah, you also have to be careful that whatever kind of footing you use in your well, mostly in your paddocks, it's going to end up in your um, compost pile. So sometimes people want to use rubber tires in their paddocks as a footing. And I don't like that because then it ends up in your compost and it ends up in your pastures. And I've also seen rubber tires uh, in indoor arenas decompose quite a bit and have a black soot kind of thing end up on the walls. So that's just something to keep in mind
0: and we have a question from a live audience Terry is wanting to know uh, what the depth of footing should be I think we touched on that a little bit I said I prefer about two inches for my horses Elaine said four to six for for what she does um, I would definitely recommend if you're in a specific discipline, to uh, go to the rule book. Usually there are some kind of guidelines in there for what the competition arenas should be, um, and, and that can help you make some decisions uh, about, about your footing. Uh, do, you, do either of you ladies have recommendations on where to find out how deep your footing should be?
1: You know, I think we, you're, you're right. right. Yeah, yeah I, I tell people to go to the, the dressage USDF. And get there's a booklet that they have called there Underfoot. Is. Yeah, mm-hmm. I tell everybody to, to get that. To it's get that one, cheap, yeah. That. It's inexpensive and it's uh, very helpful.
0: Yeah, and Donna, did you have something to add there?
1: No, I
2: was just going to say, yeah, I would go to each discipline. And I always feel like if you're going to err, err on the side of not putting quite a much you know not enough in it's much easier to add a little bit more later on than to try to take it all back out after you've added too much so yeah
0: yeah, um, yeah and I have a big pile of sand because the guy who put in my arena the contractor he is a roper and he thought I was crazy wanting so little putting <laughs> in my arena so he left a big pile he's like just in case you need some more <laughs> so I do have extra sand uh, but I found that mine is plenty deep um, but I would recommend everyone if you're putting in an arena uh, consider Putting in your budget that you're going to have to replace that footing. It's not a lifetime thing, and you do wear down your footing as you go. Um, so just keep that in mind. And in your budgeting for future on your property, uh, you spend a lot of money on it, but you're going to spend a lot of money on it again um, sooner rather than later, depending on how many horses you have uh, on their arena. Um, we have a couple. Questions from our live audience. Uh, we have Nancy and Beth are listening live, and they want to know uh, about controlling urine odors. So we've talked about manure odors, um, but for bedding and footing for your paddocks, Elaine, what recommendations do you have?
1: Well, if uh, so, if you use a inorganic footing like gravel, you do end up with more potentially more urine issues because there's nothing organic for the urine to the nitrogen and the urine to bind with and so you end up having more ammonia smell. Um, it, that is one of the plus sides of having like a, a hog fuel which is a chipped wood product for a footing because that material is composting and so it binds with the nitrogen and in the, in the urine and you don't have a urine smell. But you can have other downsides to using the chipped wood for footing, like it's going to all decompose and eventually turn into um, fine organic material, which is mud. So usually gravel or sand is what is used in paddocks. So when you have gravel or sand, you do end up with a urine smell in paddocks. And particularly on small acreage and with neighbors, it is something I'm concerned about. So... There's a number of different zeolite products on the market, and zeolite is a mineral that's uh, in clay, and it's in kitty litter, um, it's mined, and, uh, and, it, and it is like clay, like I said, and it binds with um, the ammonia in urine so that you don't get the urine smell quite as much. And there's also some other really good products on the market that I've had really good success with, and they are beneficial bacterias and en- enzymes. And you just put them in a concentrated form in a garden sprayer that you put on a hose, and you, all you have to do is just spray down your paddock. And those uh, beneficial microbes will eat the organic material so that you don't have a yarn odor And then one last thing is if you can go in and harrow your paddocks like the way that you harrow your arena. Most of us can't do that because we've got permanent fencing in our paddocks. But if you can easily get in there and harrow it, drag it, once in a while that uh, adding the aerobic component to the footing will help um, break down the urine smells. Maybe Donna has some other suggestions then too.
2: No, I think you hit them really, really well. That's, you know, it, it, it is an issue, but I don't find in this area it's, it's a big issue because I think we use pastures maybe a little bit more than, than you do, and we have all the organic matter that will help break down the ammonia, and we don't have quite the odor problem that you have. I, I have more people complaining about the odors in the barn with the rubber mats than they, than they actually do outside. Interesting.
0: We have a question from our live audience. Abigail is in Connecticut, and she says that she has a terrible nap problem, especially during the summer months. Do you have any recommendations, Elaine, for controlling gnats and biting insects on properties?
1: Yeah, I saw that question uh, in the beginning, and I was thinking that I was going to be really interested to hear what other people say because um, out uh, where I live, they, we do occasionally get really bad gnats, um, the things that the, the things that I can say about them is that they tend to live and breed in damp conditions. So if you want to make sure that you don't have mud or stagnant water around, uh, because those are the places um, that they're, or even like vegetation, like forests or wetlands, if they're close to your paddock that's areas, where they tend to breed. Um, then I would say that uh, most of them can't survive a wind, a breeze. So if you wanted to put a, a fan in your barn to help with that, they're not strong flyers. There's, little, there's also fly masks that have the ear covers that you could use. Then there's different kinds of not just fly sprays, but if you get a fly uh, protection lotion That's thicker. it will form more of a mechanical kind of barrier, and you can put that, like, in ears or on their chest or whatever, or sometimes they bite at the crest of their mane. Um, So those would be my best suggestions, and I'll be super interested if anybody else has any ideas because um, they can be pretty bad here when we're irrigating our pastures.
2: There's a lot of what we have here in the eastern part of the, the country they're actually um, in the family um, Simuliidae, and they're they're black flies. They're they're gnats. They're tiny, but they're actually in the, the black fly family, and they hatch out of streams, clean, crystal, beautiful streams. So I'm I'm thinking the caller was what from someplace in New England, Connecticut. Probably has yeah. some Connecticut probably has some pretty nice streams. I'm in the Pocono Mountains of Pennsylvania. We have beautiful streams, and the black flies when they hatch, you don't want to be around those streams and they actually um, will treat streams now in Pennsylvania, New Jersey with the Bt bacteria that is, uh, they'll actually kill the larval form of those insects and reduce the populations. But the females are looking for a blood meal. They need a blood meal to nourish their eggs. They inject the toxin into the horse's body and some horses have an allergic reaction to it and it's pretty hard to discourage. A black fly that has to have a blood meal to. nourish its eggs from biting that horse. They tend to bite chests and ears and bellies and there's just boy I tell you some of the some of the fly sprays are somewhat effective but I haven't found any that are terribly effective. I use the fly masks and all my horses with the ears because they will just drive the horses crazy flying around their ears and trying to bite on the inside of their ears so they they definitely are a problem and I don't think there's a whole lot except protecting your horse that you can do about them.
0: Mm -hmm. So okay. Uh, Donna, we have a question from Lauren in Indiana, and so we have already talked about um, horses per acre and size of properties, but when it comes to actually feeding a horse on a pasture, how many acres per horse do you need to sustain a horse?
2: The general rule of thumb is about two to four acres per horse if you're going to do unlimited turnout, and again that that's a wide variety and if there's a Uh, I wish I could could show you guys this, but uh, there's there's a chart that looks at how many acres you need to supply nutrition for one horse. And it starts out in, in this area, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, this area, Ohio, Indiana, that in the springtime before the grass is really growing, you need 11 acres. By the time you get into May, which is wonderful grass growing weather, cool weather, which is what the grass is like, and lots of moisture, you can get that down to probably about an acre and a half per horse is all you need to supply a horse's nutrition. Once you get back into the hot weather, once you get back into June and July again, you're up to needing 11 acres again to meet the nutritional needs of that horse. So It varies so much based on what the grasses are doing and what they're doing in terms of putting on nutrition and sugar and protein. and and their ability to grow. So that's, that's not a real, real easy question to answer. It's going to change. And I think most people that I watch my horses graze, I watch my pastures like crazy because I'm so interested in them. And you know, right now I'm looking at them thinking we got into a dry spell and I was watching that grass and darn it, it wasn't growing. And I knew I had to be careful with letting the horses out there because if they continue to eat the same plants over and over again, when metabolically it couldn't grow back, they're going to eliminate it. And next year, where that plant's gone, that grass is gone, I'm going to have a weed. I can guarantee you. So, you know, it, it, it's not, not easy just to come up with. The general rule of thumb is 2 to 4 acres per horse, but that doesn't mean a whole lot because it changes. It changes from week to week, month to month, day to day, depending on what the environment's doing.
0: Elaine, we have a question from Kathleen in Wisconsin. And Kathleen wants to know what kind of shelter she needs to provide for her horses. So, What are the basics that that a horse needs?
1: Well, I'm a big fan of, like, three-sided or even two-sided run-in sheds. I really like uh, those because I think it's a little more natural. And a horse can can regulate their own body temperature, and it provides excellent ventilation. Uh, They can get in there out of the driving rain and wind. Um, or if it's really hot, they can get it there and, and um, you know protect themselves from the sun. But having said that, we built um, two really nice three-sided running sheds in two large turnouts this past year. And basically, um, the young horses that we put in those, they had been uh, they came from a ranch where they all lived out in a big herd. And they didn't use the shed they would use it as a wind block and they would stand next to it to break the wind but they would not stand inside of it they would so I could have put a like a giant bulletin board there and they probably or just a wall and they would have been fine so um, and I see you know all the Mustangs live wild near me and they're just out they don't have any kind of shelter so um, I guess you know it's kind of a mixed bag as far as how much land you have, the kind of horses, the kind of riding, the kind of weather you have, and that as far as what's going to be um, best for your situation.
0: And Donna, do you have anything to add? Would maybe, if you're clipping your horse or blanketing your horse, play a role in what kind of housing or shelter they needed?
2: I think I would. I guess uh, I kind of agree with what Elaine said. It, it just seems to me that a lot of the run-in sheds that I see aren't big enough, first of all. If you have multiple horses, the dominant horse keeps the other horses out. And I find the same thing. They, in the summertime, they're just hot. They're, they're, not, they're three-sided. They tend to be not ventilated enough. The horses will stand next to them if they can get some shade, but they don't want to go in because there's just not enough. Airflow, and I think that's something the people that are building the run-in sheds need to think about I you know I I love to go to farms because I learned something every time I go to a farm and I was at this farm that they had designed their own run-in sheds and they had um, The backside I don't know how to describe this but the backside of the run-in shed was like you would see at a At a fair where the buildings are all closed up most of the year But when they're selling hot dogs and hamburgers at these farm stands They have giant wooden sides that they prop up with a board and that's kind of what they designed So that in the summertime when it was really hot, they could take the backside of the the run-in shed and just open it up so there was a lot better airflow and then the horses were inside. So I think that's a consideration to make sure that there's a ridge cap on them to make sure that they're well ventilated where the horses simply aren't going to use them. I I think some of the best run-in sheds I've I've seen are extremely big. Um, And people look at them and think it's crazy, but then the horses will use them they're deep enough they can get in there they feel safe they feel protected I think a lot of times what we build just aren't big enough and the the horses yeah generally use it as a windbreak is what they're looking at it I also like some of the run-in sheds have like an overhang kind of like a porch and I find that's where the horses stand because again there's lots of good air ventilation but they're shade and they can get they can stay dry if it rains they'd much rather stand under that than actually go in inside the run-in
1: shed
0: we have one last question that I think we have time to get to and Donna. This is for you um, this is from Georgie in Scotland and Georgie wanted to know how you feel about respreading composted manure back into a field. So she picks manure daily and then spreads the compost. Um, so can you answer that question and then also talk a little bit about um, people who might want to just drag their fresh manure into their pa- pastures?
2: Okay. Uh, boy, it's great to have somebody from Scotland ask a question. That's wonderful. Um, I love compost. I, I love manure. That's crazy. I know. But uh, like I said, it's wonderful stuff. Everything that you is in your horse's feed that your horse didn't actually utilize for their own body tissue. So you've got things you wouldn't find in an inorganic fertilizer. You've got trace minerals and everything. I love the idea of putting compost back on the pasture. Not only does it add organic matter, but it it's adding all these trace minerals and metals that these plants actually need.
1: Um, one of my
2: favorite things is I was, I was at a farm again, something I learned from a farm where it's the middle of a drought and half of every pasture looked good and the other half didn't look good. And I asked what they had done and they said, well, they spread compost manure on half. And it wasn't just that the organic matter helps with retaining water, it did, but the horses didn't graze it quite as much. They preferred to graze on the half of the pasture that didn't have the compost and manure. So what this farm actually did is they spread the half of the reef pasture one year, and the next year they spread the other half. So it's kind of like having an invisible fence there. So I can't say enough good things about putting compost back on the pasture. It's crazy. One of the studies we did in Pennsylvania, we found that many of the horse farms are deficient in potash, definitely deficient in nitrogen. Um, Some were even deficient in phosphorus, but yet people were... Giving all the manure away, just get it out of here. It's a waste. I don't want to deal with it. And yet, their their plants needed those materials. So I think it's a it's a great idea. Um, as far as picking manure out of the pastures, this is a little preliminary because we're right in the middle of this parasite project, but. We, have, we found that most of the people that are picking uh, manure out of their pastures do not have a parasite issue, they do not have a small strongyle issue. They've had nothing to look at when they were doing fecal egg hounds. So that looks like it's a wonderful tool to help with parasite management in your pastures. Not that everybody can do that on big farms, but it's, it is a great tool. Harrowing is great because it, uh, it moves the nutrients around. The horses don't eat where they've got their manure. Um, the, the negative downside of that is you are moving some of those parasite, the larvae out into the eggs out into the lawn areas where the horses tend to want to graze. So the horses graze usually downhill of those areas where the manure is because that's where the grass is the best. That's also where the parasites are. So that would be the, the downside of that. But we are, we are finding some incredible, incredibly good high immunity levels in these horses for small strongyles. giles. So... Um, yeah, there's well, some good stuff coming out there too.
0: Yeah, we're definitely looking forward to seeing the results of your parasite research because I know that's an area where all of us horse owners could know more about protecting our horses from parasites and, and managing our horses. Um So Jennifer, our web producer, has been very busy um, during the last half hour or so. And if you look in your chat window and you're listening live, she has several resources that she's pulled up for you. There's one on fencing options that Elaine mentioned earlier. Um, There is a shelter option slideshow for horses, um, and Elaine helped us put that together as well. There's some some great uh, ideas for different uh, run-in sheds um, that people have come up with and and stalls and barns. we also have an editor's selection of small property horsekeeping resources. Uh, Jennifer has put that up as well um, in the chat. Uh, if you want to directly browse to it, it's the dog slash three seven seven eight four. So give that a look, because you'll find some great resources in there. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have tonight. Um, I want to thank both of our experts so much for for joining us and answering our questions. We could have gone on for another hour or two. Uh, we had a lot of, of great questions coming in. So thank you, Donna, and thank you, Elaine.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for letting us talk
2: about something we really enjoy.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Definitely, and, uh, and hopefully maybe we can do another one on this sort of topic. Um, Next month in July, we will be discussing emergencies, horse emergencies and wound care. So look for invitations to join us next month for that topic. Until then, I'm Michelle Anderson for the horse from all of us here. Happy horse keeping.